If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back, creeps. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to another episode of Weekly Creep. This is episode 109. Okay. I found out, yeah. <laughs> so uh, this is probably the most prepared we've ever been because the next episode isn't even out yet. Oh, yay. Yeah. Um, how was your week? How was your last few days since we recorded? Uh, it's all right. I started jogging in the mornings. Uh like super fucking early and i love it like it's it's giving me peace like i i love it like no other <laughs> whoa okay <laughs> like it's really fucking cool because it's like if you do it like sure it's it's still dark out but like by then like um there's like not a soul in the street you know so like it's like when it gets dark at 9 or 10, 11, 12, whatever. There's still people out, like 2 o'clock. You know, there's still people out. Yeah. Partying, doing their things, whatever. But at like freaking 4.45 in the morning, there's no one. And you still you get to enjoy the darkness, the night, you know? And without, I am the darkness. <laughs> <laughs> like you get to enjoy that without having to worry... I feel like I don't have to worry about the creepos or anything like that, you know? Right on. Yeah. Cool. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, spending quality time with Mother Moon. That's cool. Get that into your mouth. Um, <laughs> well, my week's been good. Thanks for asking. <laughs> um <laughs> You know what it is. We go back and forth. It's my turn and then it's your turn. Yeah. No, my week has been like when I say boring. It's I, been boring. I asked one of my coworkers today, was I inside of a paint can? Because <laughs> it was less boring than watching paint dry. And then there's, I said it's like an oasis of time. Mm. No, it's like a desert of time. I see. Yeah. I get poetic when it's... Uh, boring. Fuck me, like <laughs> unbelievably boring. So anyway, we're not going to talk about it. Yeah. Have you got a card for us today? I do. Today's card is the Ace of Pentacles reversed. Today's a day to nurture the seeds for what you want to have in the future. This can literally mean working in your garden. It can also mean beginning to learn a new skill or craft, starting to save money, arranging your living space in a new way. Or doing something else that takes you closer to a future goal, particularly a goal related to security and abundance. So just a reminder, this is like you're nurturing the seeds and planning for your future in the material world. That's what the um, suit of pentacles entails. Uh, so, yeah, 
think about that. <laughs> <laughs> Put that in your noodle. Right on. That actually does fall in, though, with what we've been up to, right? I feel like. Yeah. Um, I'd say so, like, especially, like, for me uh, right now because I've been a little spendy. <laughs> and this is just a card reminding me to get back on track. Um, I've kind of let myself get a little spendy because my birthday just passed. So this is like a nice reminder um, to just keep the eye on the prize, you know, our prize, which is our house in the mountains. Yep. Also, thank you for all of the lovely birthday wishes. That was really nice. That was super sweet. I really felt the love. Um, it was really nice seeing like basically screenshots upon screenshots of like, all these listeners wishing me happy birthday. It was like super, super nice. And yeah. I got like really nice gifts and I'm still getting really nice gifts. Um, and my birthday, like actual birthday and the day before was really nice. Uh, my boss bought me a cake and he got he gave me the toppers today because they arrived late. But it's the whole <laughs> Super Mario game. <laughs> and now yeah. they get to hang out at my desk. And then my birthday was super freaking fun. We went shopping. We went... Um, well, the day before, we went to see the Barbie movie. I can't remember. And then we, we saw the Barbie before, movie before that. that. And then what else did we do? We went shopping. Um, my mom cooked us a bomb-ass lunch and a bomb-ass dinner, like steak, and yeah. steak, baked potatoes with all the fixings, fucking shrimp and all this other stuff. Fucking shrimp. <laughs> <laughs> and like... Uh, my dad turned on the sprinklers in his backyard and me and the kids just ran through them. Yeah. <laughs> I got, got a really good picture of you just sitting in the sprinklers. <laughs> we were like soaking. Just, yeah. Yeah, drenched in fucking backyard water. <laughs> but no, it was. It was a really nice weekend. I completely forgot about that. Like. <laughs> backyard water sounds like a euphemism for diarrhea. <laughs> yeah, actually. Gross. Um, oh, let me just click this real quick. I'm going to leave this in. I'm not going to edit that out. That was me just publishing um, this upcoming episode on our Patreon feed. So it's going to be on there ad free. Right now, we're going to do them early while we can. I don't know if it'll always be like that, but I am going to start publishing them there. And there's also like extra little bonus videos. Um, like last week, we did the Irish folklore or like local Irish tales episode. And then we also did like Pishogs for Patreon, which mm. was like random superstitions and stuff like that. So that was really cool, actually. That's going to be up there by the time you hear this. And it is only $2 a month, which we really appreciate. I like I've actually heard a lot of podcasters, real podcasters, like legit professional podcasters lately saying about um, how little they're getting for advertising. Mm. Like and they're saying it in their ads to say like, you know cough up money well I mean, in a nice <laughs> way um but yeah like the ads now are paying like a third of what they were jesus just a couple of months fuck? ago yeah why i don't know it's just the way the market has gone unfortunately and that's, like that this is a lot of people's living so we really appreciate yeah um, that's really how you keep the gap between the people who don't have to work and the people who do yeah and as well, like one of our listeners recommended a uh, podcast, Yeti, 
And like, I'm actually hoping we will have other professional podcasters on here soon. Um, but like the big guys, like BBC and stuff like that, like we can't compete with them when it comes to, you know what I mean? Fuck advertising no. and stuff. Uh -uh. So anyway, your $2 a month goes towards buying delicious books and podcast equipment and stuff like that, like mm -hmm. basically. So yeah, we really appreciate it. And also while we're at it, go over and subscribe on our YouTube channel. I want to get to a thousand subscribers. I, I also want to add that two packets of Jell-O is $2 at my grocery store. So your $2 helps me buy Jell-O. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. I'll be rolling in it. <laughs> Literally, yeah. Just Anyway. So, as well as that, we do also have an Amazon wish list. But I have had this book for months. And this is Alive by Paul Pierce Reed. And it's in our little collection, which is right here. It's a delightful collection. But the reason why I wanted to cover this story is because I briefly remember seeing a bit of a movie of the book, which came out in 1993. Have you ever seen this movie? No. Okay. The book is called Alive. The movie is called Alive. Um... But yeah, I remember my dad telling me what it was about. And it's like just always stuck with me. It's like pretty macabre. Macabre. Uh, I couldn't have been older than five. But I knew that it was based off of a true story. And that some rugby team had crashed in the mountains somewhere. And had resorted to cannibalism in order to survive. To quote Danny Torrance. They ate each other up. Oh, <laughs> Is that really what he said? Yeah, in The Shining, remember? They talk about the Donner Party. Oh, shit. So this yeah, is, yeah. like, I've heard a lot of people uh, refer to this as, like, the modern Donner Party. And we will cover the Donner Party mm -hmm. one day as well. Yeah. Um, but the thing that stuck with me wasn't the cannibalism so much as the fact that these guys actually survived. Yeah. Okay, and when I started reading the story, which the author, Paul Pierce, Pierce, Paul Reed, Put together based on his personal interviews with the survivors just a few short weeks after they returned to civilization. Damn. Okay. Yeah. You know, when I whenever I see the word cannibalism, I think about me and the way I eat mangoes. It's pretty close. Anyways, continue. I would imagine. We should uh, film that and post it on our Instagram story. You'll have to edit it because I can't hear it. I can't <laughs> listen to it. But no, the thing that stuck out to me was just how far the human mind can be pushed without snapping and how intense the will to live can be. Like, And similar to the Tonga Castaways story, what a group of focused humans can achieve in even the most devastating conditions. Yeah, now, I mean, it kind of reminds me of that story that you told about those kids. This is the metal version of that. Yeah, yeah. So that being said, this is not a tale for the faint of heart. And while I won't be focusing on the gorier points, I will not be shying away from them if it's relative relevant to the story. Yeah, cool. Um, this is the scariest book I've ever read. You have I, mentioned I that I really before. think that. Yeah. Um, I also watched a documentary on Hulu, which was just released this May. But I think, yeah, I've just lost my taste for mainstream documentaries and media. Like it's a lot of, it's probably about like 10 minutes worth of Actual, actual story yeah and oh that's a shame i mean like they tell the story it's, it's not that like and you get to see 
Like some of these boys are still alive. I mean, they're not boys anymore. They lean into the shock factor, though. Uh, it's just it just didn't strike me in the right way. Okay. But check it out if you're interested. It's it's out there on Hulu. Um, yeah, it just did seem kind of exploitative. I see. Okay. And much like certain large scale podcasts, just overproduced. You know what mm, I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it, it might be thirty minutes worth of a show, but you really only get three minutes worth of. Um, I see information and my last note here is support your local podcasters and YouTubers people so I must have been really feeling it this day yeah you're really on one yeah <laughs> so please fasten your seatbelts stow your tray table and put away all large electronic devices as we prepare oh lord for takeoff <laughs> oh yeah around six in the morning of Thursday October 12th 1972 passengers and their families started showing up to Carrasco Airport, just outside Montevideo in Uruguay. Everyone was in good spirits as they were flying to Santiago, Chile, for the second old Christians trip. I'm trying to look at the camera because last episode I was literally just like this the entire time. (laughs) Um, So the old Christians club was founded a few years prior and was made up of alumni from the local Stella Maurice College which was actually a school run by Irish Christian brothers Mm. who had come up from Brazil to uh, Uruguay. The college wasn't actually a college like we think of today, but more of a secondary or a high school, which same as my school back home. It's called the Christian Brothers College, Mm -hmm. but it's just a high school. Um, It was for boys between the age of nine and 16. Now, oh... That's my next point. Yeah, my school was Clonkeen College. Um, we didn't have rugby at our school, though, because our teachers thought it was too English. That's a fact. We had a really Republican uh, Irish teacher. Sick. So we played soccer. I mean, I didn't. People played soccer. <laughs> Others um, played soccer. Yeah, which is also English, I guess. Um, but I texted my cousin, Marcus, who's about to get married. And Shout out, Marcus. It turns out not only does Clonkeen now have a rugby team, but his little brother Fionn is the captain. Nice. Yay, Fionn. Yay, Fionn. They, I will say, those four boys are built like brick shit houses. <laughs> so I'm not surprised at Fionn. <laughs> um, and also, the, lastly, I want to give a shout out to Emmett because I don't think we've ever actually shouted out Emmett. Emmett is my cousin back home and he's one of very few Irish listeners. Oh, yeah? And he's like diehard, yeah. Oh, so, wow. Emmett, we really appreciate it. And we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Howdy, Emmett. Sorry about the siren in the background. It's, anyway. It's, I had a brain fart. Anyways, continue. <laughs> anyway, the old Christians formed a rugby team. And I think that was the whole point of the club to begin with. And they eventually became very good winning the Uruguayan National Championship in 1968 and 1970. In 71, they started they started to play Argentinian teams and then decided to make the trip to Chile and play there. Much like what a lot of the lads do back home still. Mm. Uh, like, particularly with soccer teams and stuff, they'll fuck off. Over here, even now, mm. they're doing it and they'll be like, Ballybrack boys versus Seattle, right? That's what Kean did. Uh, yeah, I Something think like so. That. Didn't he go to, like, uh, Spain as well? Yeah, like, it's great. Yeah. If you're into, you know, boy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but to keep costs down, they chartered a Uruguayan Air Force plane and sold any empty seats to friends, family, and 
whoever wanted to go. The more tickets they sold, the cheaper it would be for everyone. And this method was apparently not an uncommon thing back then. So that first trip went swimmingly. The old Christians played the Chilean national team. Like, that's a big deal, like playing the national team. Uh, They played them twice, winning one game and losing the other. And everyone just had a great time in between. Like they just had a regular vacation. Um, And so the first thing they did when they got back to Montevideo was start planning the 1972 trip. Mm. Uh, Like some of the boys had girlfriends or novias in Chile and stuff like that. So they would write to each other uh, like old school, like letters or like reach out to each other over uh, CB radio and stuff. It was really cute. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Novias, I appreciate you learning that name. That Novia. Well, in fairness to, I'm just gonna call him. So is that PBR Portuguese? Like girlfriend. Uh, Novia. Yeah. It's Spanish. I know, but I'm wondering if it's the same for in Portuguese. Well, Uruguay is Spanish speaking and Chile. Oh, sorry, we had mentioned Brazil. Oh, the the Irish Christian brothers came up from Brazil. They were on, oh, like, I see. Had some mission down there. And okay. They were spreading the good word. Anyway. That following season, though, the lads got too cocky and ended up losing to a team that they really shouldn't have lost against. Mm. And so there was a lot less enthusiasm from people, like not on the team. And they really struggled to sell the remaining seats, but the plane had already been booked. I see. So they managed to fill up the seats eventually, but it was a bit more like hodgepodge collection of passengers compared to the previous year with some random friends, cousins the mother and sister of one of the teammates and two middle-aged couples um, who I think were just taking advantage of the cheaper flights. And even a lady who was going to see her daughter get married to a political exile. Wow, spicy. Yeah, yeah. Like it was, these people were like the year before it was just all the lads going to see the rugby. This year it was more of a a random collection of characters really. A hodgepodge. A hodgepodge, yeah. So all in all, there was 40 passengers, five crew members on board the Fairchild F-227 or 227. Yeah, I should have said it like that, right? (laughs) F-227. And I think that around 34 of them were young lads between the age of 18 and 26. So everyone who was due to fly out was there at the airport this morning, with the exception of Gilberto Regules. Regules? Yeah, that's good. Uh, who had apparently slept in and now like nobody could get a hold of him because it was 1972. So no cell phones. No cell phones, not even really house phones. Mm. So even though it was a privately chartered plane, they still had to leave by around eight that morning because to, to cross the Andes afternoon, not in the afternoon, but after 12 o'clock midday mm-hmm. was treacherous. Um, I think something to do with the warm air meeting the cold from the mountains or some bullshit. And that just meant that the turbulence was batshit crazy. Mm. Like the most experienced of pilots were like, you know, yeah, we're not doing that. So the crossing itself actually only made up the last 30 minutes of the three or four hour flight. But it was by far the most dangerous part. And it wasn't just the turbulence either. They had to select a very specific course through the mountain range because the Andes had an average height of around 13,000 feet. Jesus. But a lot of these peaks actually rise up and over 20,000 feet with the highest and Concagua. Okay. I don't know how to pronounce that. I'm sorry. You do your best. Actually reached 
22,834 feet, which is only 6,000 feet shy of Everest. Goddamn. Now, you may be asking, why am I giving you all of this irrelevant information? When we all know that today, the common cruising altitude for most commercial airplanes is between 33 and 42,000 feet, which is almost double the height of Ankongkaigua. Well, the highest, and I'm going to hide this from you because I can see you reading over oh, there. <laughs> and I think it's Aconcagua. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Commercial flights these days fly over double the height of this mountain, right? Or okay. in and around that. So they're under that. The highest that the Fairchild F-227 was capable of flying at was actually just 22,000, 22 and a half thousand feet. 300 feet lower than the highest peak in the Andes. Oh, okay. Yeah. And finally, there were two pilots, okay? Mm -hmm. Colonel Julio Cesar Ferrades, or Ferradas, mm -hmm. who... Over a 27-year career with the Uruguayan Air Force, he had amassed 5,117 hours of flying experience and had done this trip, or very similar trip, numerous times. His co-pilot, on the other hand, was Lieutenant Dante Hector Lagarada, who, although older than Ferradas, was less experienced and had actually been sent to Ferradas to basically learn and get better as he had already parachuted out of a T-33 jet previously. Like he literally had to abandon the plane mid-flight. Whoa. Because of his lack of skill. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. Is, I don't have proof of that. That's what the author made it out. Okay. So he was sent to the big dog to be like, just please teach him because he is Air Force. It's not like we're just going to kick him out. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I googled the, the T-33 and I actually think it's a training aircraft, so... <laughs> he fucked up a training yeah, plane. No bueno la garada. They took off from Montevideo or wherever the airport was. They took off from Uruguay at 8.05 that morning. Spirits were high with the lads throwing a rugby ball to one another and everyone laughing and joking. And then, quote, suddenly they saw the Andes rising before them. A dramatic and apparently impassable wall with snow-clad peaks like the teeth of a giant saw. This author was really good. Like, I was <laughs> buried into He's this He's like book. you and you're bored. Yeah. <laughs> and um, feeling, like, apathetic. <laughs> yeah, so I, I had to steal that line because it was just too good not to. Um, but, as the, the, but as the Andes came into view, so too did the steward to inform the boys that they would be making an unscheduled landing in Mendoza Airport as the weather conditions over the Andes were just too unsafe to attempt. So with great disappointment and a particularly rough landing in Mendoza Airport, thanks to co-pilot Lagarada, the passengers of the Fairchild set out to spend a night or two in Argentina to wait for better weather. Okay. Roberto Canessa apparently said something along the lines of, well done on that landing, Mr. Pilot. Because it was so shit. <laughs> All right. Like, apparently they just hoofed into the... <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, like, this is something that really stressed me out. Okay. When I was reading this... Is it because we're flying in two weeks? <laughs> no, nothing to do with that, actually. Oh. But not one of the 45 had a phone. And they made no plans to meet back up. They were like, all right, look, we're in Argentina. Chill out. The fly... In a few days. Don't worry about it. But like, yeah, they just landed in Mendoza and immediately split up. 
right? They Simpler times. found whatever hotels and restaurants they could and just lived their fucking lives. <laughs> Two of the lads left the city altogether to watch some car racing and all. Never been there before. They're just like, oh, fuck it, racing. Like, let's go. And anyway, the next morning, as Roberto Canessa and one of the lads were having breakfast, they spotted the pilots walking towards them. So they call out, hey, can we leave now or what? To which the answer was no. And so Roberto asked, are you cowards or what? Now, the pilot remembered Roberto being cheeky the day before after the rough, rough landing and angrily said, do you want your parents to read in the papers that 45 Uruguayans are lost in the Cordillera? Ooh. Yeah. Suck on that, Roberto. A Cordillera. I think that's how oh, you shit. say it. Oh, well, shit. He might be dead. I shouldn't say that. Uh, get used to hearing the name Roberto. Because there's about five of them, actually. <laughs> oh, <fuck. laughs> but no, specifically Roberto Canessa. Um, but yeah, a Cordillera or Cordillera. I don't know if that's an English or, or Spanish word, honestly. Um, but it's a system or group of parallel mountain ranges together with the intervening plateaus and other features, especially in the Andes or the Rockies. So basically a vast expanse of a pretty sure uninhabitable mountain range, right? Okay. That is a Cordillera. Hostile mountains. Yeah. Which, like that statement from the pilot, in hindsight, just seems like such an eerie premonition. But it wouldn't be the only one. This is very, like, final destination. Literally, yeah, yeah. Because the plane belonged to the Uruguayan Air Force, there was some law saying that it couldn't stay in Argentina for more than 24 hours. And so the passengers all somehow got the message. It's like something just went off in their brain. They're like, we have to go back to the airport. Final destination, man. Yeah. And they all got back to the airport at one o'clock that afternoon. The pilots still weren't sure if they should even attempt the crossing. But as they were getting ready... But as they were getting ready, another much shittier cargo plane came <laughs> trundling down onto the runway. And so the fair It was child, just a bucket with rocks. Yeah, that's the way it's like. But the Fairchild pilots spoke to the man flying that rickety plane who told them that the turbulence was pretty rough. But if they could make it, but if he could make it in that thing, the Fairchild should have no problem. Surely. So the pilots gave the all clear. And as they were loading up, they saw the cargo plane take off again, looking even worse than before. <laughs> so they were like, oh, this is fine. Two of the lad, two of the boys turned to some Argentinian girls who they had befriended the night before and said, now we know what kind of planes they have in Argentina. And one of the oh. girls snapped back. At least it got over the Andes, which is more than oh. yours. Will. Yeah. Bro. Premonition number two. Bro. So, at 18 minutes past two on the 13th of October, 1972, the Fairchild set off once more. Yes, it was Friday the 13th. And yes... Which is supposed to be lucky. Mm, no, it's not. <laughs> and yes, co-pilot Lagarada was behind the wheel once again. Mm. That's a shitty one, right? Yeah. Okay. They had decided to go the safest possible route, and at 3.08 they turned to fly over the Cordillera. They estimated that they would hit the midway point at 321. This is where they would switch from Argentinian to Chilean air traffic control. So right on time at 321, they radioed Santiago Airport and estimated that they would reach Curtico by 332. 11 minutes. 11 minutes. 
Curitico was a small town on the Chilean side of the Andes, but here's where shit gets really weird. Just three minutes later, La Guerrada radioed again to say, checking Curitico and heading toward Maipu, which Why? is a funny name of a place. We'll never know. After estimating 11 minutes until the next check-in, three minutes later, he's like, all right, we're there. Okay. And then I had actually written, pause here for my poo. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. We have to bring levity Beautiful. to these things. <laughs> now, air traffic control had no reason to doubt him, so they gave the go-ahead to start descending, and the plane made a right-angle turn to get back on track to Santiago. At this point, they entered a cloud and things got a little bumpy. Lagarara turned on the fasten seatbelt sign and instructed the steward to make sure everyone had strapped in and not smoking before he went back to his own seat. But the boys were all still dicking around with the rugby ball. And when the plane hit an even rougher patch of turbulence, someone actually grabbed the mic, the intercom mic, and said, Ladies and gentlemen, please put on your parachutes. We are about to land in the Cordillera. Jesus. Premonition number three. The plane started to hit air pockets and dropped several hundred feet at a time. Some of the boys are putting on a brave face and being loud and just saying like, you know, oh, what is this like crappy pilot? Ha ha ha. Others hadn't even bothered putting on their seatbelts and suddenly another air pocket dropped them out of the cloud that they had been flying through, revealing not the greenery of Chile, but the stark white snow of the Andes just 10 feet from the tip of the <laughs> from the tip of the wing. There was just enough time for someone to ask, is it normal to fly this close? And then they all started to pray as the pilots desperately tried to pull the plane back up, but it was too late. At a speed of around 230 miles per hour, the right wing hit the mountainside and was ripped off at such velocity that it actually cut through the tail of the plane. The wing severed the tail. The steward, navigator and three boys were ripped out with the tail. And then the left wing struck and was torn off, leaving the plane to slide down the valley on its belly until it eventually skidded to a halt in the snow, losing two more boys as it slid along. What the actual yeah. fuck? This sounds, you know what this sounds like? Final destination. It sounds like when a child is playing with a plane with like little Legos inside of it. He's just like, rah, rah, yeah. rah, and it's like just all flying and like little Lego man just flying. It fucking it's sounds nuts. like that. Like it sounds as ridiculous as that. Like what's the word? R not ridiculous, but like outlandish, otherworldly. Like it's yeah, like yeah. super strange that something like that can happen. happen. Well, just wait. The rate of deceleration ripped some of the seats and other fixtures up, and sent pieces of metal and plastic flying. Gustavo Zerbino, one of three med students, managed to undo his seatbelt and stood firmly, like as you stand on a bus, literally stood with his hands pressed against the ceiling and rode the plane down, basically. Then, after the cacophony of screams as the plane was ripped apart and hurled down through the valley, there was sudden silence. It didn't last long, and Roberto Canessa shouted, It stopped! Roberto was a bit of a loudmouth, as we know already. The lads called him Muscles. But because he was so stubborn, not because of his muscles, um, even though he also had a lot of muscles, because <laughs> these are all fit rugby players right, as well. Right, right. So anyway, he was also a med student. He helped a friend up and the two immediately began helping others. 
Not everyone was injured, but a lot were understandably in a serious state of shock. So, Roberto and Gustavo got straight to work helping whoever they could help. And it needs to be said here too that Roberto, Gustavo and another fella called Diego, uh, Diego Storm, they were all med students, but they had very little experience. Um, like, I don't think any of them had actually spent any time in a hospital or anything yet. Uh, I think they were in like the first and second year of whatever course they were doing. Mm -hmm. Diego was in a complete state of shock at this point too. But ultimately, they were all way out of their depth in this situation regardless. Marcelo, the team captain, however, immediately took responsibility trying to wrangle the shock and keep the uninjured busy. The back of the plane was now just a gaping mouth where the tail had once been and a few of the younger boys had gone out as soon as they were free of their seats and now sat smoking cigarettes, taking in the bleak scene that they found themselves in. It was just, I think, human reaction to just wander towards the fresh air, kind of. Yeah. Now, it was absolutely freezing, okay? And for the most part, they were all just wearing shirts, like short sleeve t-shirts, button-ups, and maybe sport coats, but... That was it. And as these lads sat on suitcases looking at the snow-covered valley, they saw someone stumbling down through the snow. Every step this person took had them almost waist-deep in snow. As they watched, they realized that it was one of their teammate, teammates, Carlos Valletta. They shouted and jumped up and down to try and get his attention, but he didn't seem to hear them. The boys even tried to go to meet him, but they couldn't get through the snow, and eventually Valletta stumbled fell and slid down the mountain out of view is that the last we'll hear about him yeah jesus christ marcello instructed the lads to drag the injured out into the snow partially to make them easier to spot but also so they could try and clear some of the chairs out and free up some floor space because the chairs had piled up in the front of the plane becoming a mangled screaming pile of metal plastic and people the pilot ferradas had died but Lagarada was still alive. Barely. Okay. He was pinned by the controls and begging for a gun. What the fuck? Which they did have in the cockpit, but the boys were all devout Catholics. They yeah. Were Christian Brothers team. Mm. So they couldn't allow such a sin. So they tried to make him more comfortable. All the while he kept repeating, we passed Curico, we passed Curico. The plane had crashed around 3.30. And not long after, it started to snow, bringing visibility down to a minimum. And by six o'clock, they realized that they weren't going to be rescued until the following day. So all bundled back into the plane on the limited floor, floor space. Surprisingly enough, there were 32 survivors out of the 45 passengers and crew. They tried to build a wall out of suitcases and chairs and whatever they could get their hands on to block the wind, but it was still well below freezing. Most of them were still just wearing like their shirts and they had placed the most severely injured in the only space that they could actually lie down. So most of the lads spent the night all kind of huddled together at the the big hole where the tail was, mm -hmm. uh, drinking wine and like literally punching each other to keep the blood flowing and stuff. Oh, wow. Uh, and trying to keep their spirits up as much as they could while in the darkness of the fuselage, their fellow passengers moaned and screamed, delirious from the pain of their injuries. So how many people were injured? Injured in total, I don't know. There was 32 survivors at this mm -hmm. point mm -hmm. out of 45. So 13 died on impact. Mm. And fun fact, 
the Andes actually had the worst snowfall in over 30 years that year. And according to the Chilean Air Force, at that altitude, at that time of year, um, the temperature went down to 30 or 40 degrees below Jesus zero. Christ. When Roberto Canessa described how cold it was, he said, you could feel the cold from the pain in your bones. Right, yeah, so... What? <laughs> like, unimaginable. You, so you could feel the pain in your bones from the cold. As in, like, you were literally frozen to the bone. Okay, Yeah. cool. Say that, man. <laughs> it was much more poetic the way he said it. The following morning, after a very sleepless night, they found that some of the more severely injured had died or were on the cusp of death. And so the lads who were able to helped those that they could help. La Gorada was now dead, meaning the boys only had one crew member left to help with the logistics of survival. Because remember, these guys were Uruguayan Air Force, mm-hmm. regardless of what had just happened. So the surviving crew member, however, had done nothing but weep since the crash and had lost control of his bodily functions. Uh, his name was Rock. And although they didn't say anything about like physical injuries, he was clearly going through it. Mm. And like, here's the other thing, right? Some of the boys had just either out of complete shock or concussion. Mm. They were like waking up in the middle of the night or just suddenly getting up and being like, oh, I was just going to go and get a Coke out of the fridge and trying to just walk out into the snow. Mm. And this guy literally thought he was maybe he was paralyzed who knows but i think it was more of a mental thing rather than the injuries yeah but now the guys had to deal with like this plane was already cut almost in half mm-hmm. very limited space and now like not everybody can control their bodily functions yeah all of this stuff is adding up already like you know or their mental yeah their, their mental Everybody's mental state at this point. Yeah, is. yeah. Team captain Marcelo knew he had to keep grilling him though, this rock guy. Mm-hmm. And eventually, uh, he was told that if he could find the tail of the plane, he could potentially use the batteries to get the radio to work. So obviously, all the instruments are in the cockpit, mm. but the batteries controlling, powering those instruments were in the tail. Mm-hmm. But this gave the lads a goal, like something to work toward. Although. Mm-hmm. As it was, they didn't even know if the tail was still in one piece. Never mind, like, where it could have ended up. Yeah. Even the trail, like, I think that their part of the plane had Mm -hmm. kind of carved into the snow was already filling up from the snowfall the previous night. Yeah. Next, Marcelo set about getting an inventory of anything edible because even though they were pretty sure they would be rescued within a day or so, they just wanted to play it safe and ration what they had responsibly. Like, again... When I say this is like this whole story is a testament to, um, I guess, like the strength of a team, right? Like, mm-hmm. And even like they just kind of immediately fell into formation, pardon the pun, like as if they were on the field. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, like yeah. Marcelo was like, right, you three, because he just knew who worked well together. Three of the guys were like cousins and shit. Yeah. It's like, right, you three go do this. You two do this, blah, blah, blah. So... Of the eight bottles of wine brought on by the pilots, because they bought cheap wine and when they stopped off in Argentina, <laughs> only three remained as the boys had been sipping away the night before. But otherwise, they had a bottle each of whiskey, cherry brandy, creme de menthe, and a half a hip flask more of whiskey. Food-wise, 
They had eight chocolate bars, five nougat bars, some loose caramel sweets, a few dates and dried plums, um, a packet of salted crackers, two cans of mussels, which is gross. Random. Yeah. Um, a can of salt, salted almonds and three small jars of jam, peach, apple and blackberry. Separate flavors, not three <laughs> jars of peach, apple and blackberry jam. <laughs> it's a, it's the mixed medley. Jam. Yeah, yeah. This is whatever's left. <laughs> now, obviously, this wasn't all being carried out by Marcelo himself, but the lads naturally held him as their leader, both on and off the field. So they just were happy to oblige. And I think just having some sort of order given to them probably helped just like concentrate on one thing at a time. Yeah, you go from being hopeless to hopeful once you got a plan. Yeah, and yeah. If, if you're just being told and you're kind of in a dumb in state a pace, of shock yeah. anyway, you're just going to go along with it, go with the flow. Yeah, you, you go on autopilot. Yeah. Pardon um, the pun. Yeah, I was going to say. He even divided them up into smaller teams depending on their capabilities and all, mm -hmm. like who was more or less severely injured, etc. Oh, I see. Lunch that day consisted of a square of chocolate and the deodorant can lid and a deodorant can lid filled with wine. Mm. Almost cruelly, the survivors' hopes were lifted when they heard a plane overhead that afternoon. But unfortunately, cloud cover meant they didn't actually see the plane mm. and certainly no plane saw them. Mm -hmm. By now, there were 28 alive, Damn. but I don't know that all of them were in any condition to eat. At the top, I mentioned that one of the team members had his mother and sister along for the trip, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That chap was Nando Parado. Now, he definitely wasn't eating at this point. They actually thought he wasn't going to make it through that first night because he was so badly injured that his face was almost unrecognizable and his pulse barely detectable. His mother had died on impact. His best friend, Pancho, died at some stage during that first night. And his sister, Susanna, was hanging on by a thread. Susanna's head injuries seemed superficial, but the doctors felt that there were internal injuries that they couldn't do anything about. And so they just tried to make her as comfortable as possible. That second night, though, the guys at least had some sort of expectation of what to come, of what was to come. They managed to clear a small bit more room for sleeping and knew that they had to build a wall out of whatever they could to try and stop the wind as much as they could. Back in civilization... The Chilean Air Force had sent up planes pretty much as soon as the loss of communication was reported. The two guys in charge were not hopeful in the slightest, but they were duty bound as there is a law stating that in any country, um, or as there is a law stating that any country in which a plane is lost has to actively search for 10 days, regardless of how unlikely it is that they will find anything. Oh, I did not know that. Um, neither did I. We're all learning together. This might have changed as well. Like this was mm. the 70s. Now it's three days. Yeah. Is it really? I think so, yeah. Mm. They were also operating... I just assumed, because I think that's how long... Um, oh, shit. I think that's how long you... Um, police can search for people. Oh, well, this is different. Like, now they're not searching for people. They're, like, they're searching for the wreckage. Oh, I see. Pretty much straight off the bat, but... They're assuming that everyone's dead. I mean, yeah, in all likeliness, yeah, yeah. like any plane oh. crash into a mountain range. Oh, I see. You're not going to be hopeful. Um, but as well as that, they were also, oh, and this is as soon as the plane 
ceased communication. Mm-hmm. This search was called on. Okay. But they were also operating on false information that Lagarada had given when he thought that they were flying over critical. Oh my God. Yeah, this fucking guy. Where right? did they actually fly over? Somewhere in the middle of the Aldis. Uh, of the Aldis. The Aldi? <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere in the frozen <laughs> section. <laughs> uh, <laughs> in the frozen section. <laughs> it's just computed what you said. Bad joke. That was bad. Sometimes the situations are, the, the subjects are so serious <laughs> that you actually have to make little jokes here. And oh there. my God. You're so quick with it. <laughs> oh my God. Go ahead. The next day, they would use their own knowledge to work out the area where the plane had actually gone down. But when they figured that out, they realized that it was pretty much smack bang in the middle of the Andes. An area known to have snow 20 to 100 feet deep at that time of year. And to top it all off, the roof of the Fairchild was white. Jesus Christ. In Montevideo, random reports and false rumors had made their way to some of the parents of the boys. Now, this is probably some of the worst crap, like, that I'm about to read, right? Okay. For example, on Saturday morning, Daniel Fernandez's dad was told that the plane had been found. He hadn't even known that it was missing to begin with. Christ. It went down on Friday afternoon, remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The old Christians had plenty of members who weren't going on the trip, and one of them, uh, Rafael Ponce de Leon, he was an old-fashioned radio ham. And for anybody who doesn't know, a radio ham is someone who has the necessary or had back in the day the necessary equipment to broadcast AM and FM radio without being an actual registered radio station. Um, I think it used to be way more popular, probably until podcasting showed up. Like we today would probably be fucking radio hams you know kind of I mean? like guerrilla radio where it's That's just like exactly an, was, anybody yeah. who can get on the radio waves and say whatever the fuck they want without being regulated yeah and i actually think i might be wrong i think that's like how art bell got uh started on coast to coast mm. might be wrong about that but he used to run out of his own house mm-hmm. he had his studio built up and he would get calls from like truckers and just other radio ham people like rather than actually phoning in they would mm-hmm. anyway um, it was really cool, though. You could also radio someone from another country and have them connect you to the local phone line, which apparently, although not strictly legal, would save you on long distance phone calls. Oh, yeah. Anyway, Rafael was the man. <laughs> Rafael was the radio man in Montevideo. His wife was seven months pregnant, and so he didn't want to go on the trip with the rest. of I'm sure he did, but. You know, his wife was seven months pregnant. So when he heard on the regular radio on Friday night, just on the news that the plane had gone missing, he jumped on his ham radio to contact the hotel that the boys were supposed to stay in when they got to Santiago. It was Raphael, after all, who had helped them book it. So he knew all of their like itinerary, you Mm, know. mm -hmm. So when he got through to the hotel, he asked uh, reception, had any of the old Christians checked in? and was told, yes, they had. Mm. So he then reported this good news to some of the families. He's like, don't worry, a plane did go down. It mustn't have been our plane because the boys checked in at the hotel. Mm -hmm. I don't even think the parents knew that the plane had been diverted like the day before or anything. Like it had already been called off off, thanks to bad weather the day before. But because it was the 70s, I guess the 
kids are like, oh, well, fuck it. Like, they'll find out when we get home. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So the fact that they were supposed to check in the day before Friday afternoon confused everything even more, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, they should have been checked in Thursday night. And I guess when the regular news reported that the plane still had not been found, he contacted the hotel again and again was told that the old Christian's reservation had been, people had checked in, right? And two of the old Christians had actually checked in. Gilberto Regules, who had been late to the airport uh. and missed the flight. And another chap, uh, Bobby Yaugust, whose dad worked for KLM, the German or Dutch uh, airline. Mm -hmm. Right. So he had free travel. And then Gilberto hopped on the plane with him, I guess. Okay. So the two of them checked in mm -hmm. so that the hotel wasn't giving false information as far as they were concerned. Oh, yeah, like this is that reservation Christians and these boys checked, checked in. in. Yeah, yeah. But then Raphael had to go and tell whoever he had told that the boys had been found that I'm really sorry, like they actually haven't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like the parents were just up and down like for the yeah. like two or three whole days. Like oh, that's awful. And then the next rumor came from one of the boys, Chilean novias. Oh, Lord. So the parents of Guido Magritte had contacted his Chilean girlfriend to see if she had heard anything. And the poor girl said that Guido's mom sounded so upset and she was, show she was so sure that they would be found alive and well soon that she just told Senora Magritte that they had landed in a different part of Chile because of inclement weather, but they were all fine not to worry about it. Wow. So I can understand why she did that. She was like 17 or something, 16 or 17. And she was like, had this woman desperately crying, yeah. like, where's my I baby? I get like, it. I get it. I get why she would do that. Yeah. So Raphael, in fairness to him, managed to get in touch with the girl and quash the rumor. Tough as it was, he just wanted to make sure from here on out that all they got was pure facts. Yeah. He was the contact for all the boys in Montevideo and he took his new role very seriously. Now, I know that I've thrown a lot of names out here and there, but this is a very real story and covering three countries and involving 45 people and their families. So I've tried to limit like the name dropping mm. as much as I could while also keeping it like as respectful as possible. Um, and like... <laughs> As well as that, they are all from one pretty small place in Uruguay. So there's multiple Carloses, Gustavos, Fernandos, and three Daniels. <laughs> yeah. So, Carlos Paez Villaro is the father is the father of Carlitos Paez. Okay. And he hears about the this chat anyway. He hears about the plane going missing while dropping his daughter off to Carlitos' mother's house on the Friday that it happened. Okay. So. Um, upon hearing the news, he turns to his ex-wife, Carlitos, Carlitos' mother, and says, Antonio Bandera's voice. I, will f I, I wrote that. Oh. So I wouldn't forget. I thought it was like in the book. like, <laughs> no, like Antonio Bandera's voice. No, no, no. Like in his best Antonio Bandera's voice, he told Carlitos' mother. No. That I will, yeah. He told Carlitos' mother, I will find these boys myself. And... Literally was on a flight to Santiago the next morning. And that afternoon, the Saturday afternoon, he was up in a military aircraft searching the area where they believed that the Fairchild had gone down. Fucking hell, man. So Carlitos, 
or sorry, Carlos had divorced his wife or they split up. Yeah. But like he was still really involved. Yeah. And he he thought that God love him. He thought this was going to like win it, win her back. <laughs> oh, did he? So he was like, if I do nothing else with the rest of my life, I'm going to find these boys. And I mean, it's his fucking son. It's right? his son. Yeah. Jesus but like it was this heroic thing. And he was like, I'm going to find my boy. I'm going to get him back and we're going to live as a happy family. Hey, man, like, you that's, know, that's more than some. Yeah. Will I don't do know. Like, for their it was children. super, super admirable. Like, yeah. Now, he was by no means the only parent trying to find their child. Like another 22 had actually flown down to Santiago and were in the airport when Carlos landed from his first search. At this point, though. The Chilean Air Force had to put a stop to the parents trying to get on the search planes because now they were just hindering like extra weight means extra fuel means, I see. you know, mm -hmm. just logistically this wasn't going to work. So the plane went down, the Fairchild, the plane that the boys had been on, been on, went down on Friday the 13th. And by the morning of Monday the 16th, a search party made up of the Cuerpo de Socorro, Socorro. De Socorro Andino volunteers who specifically searched for people in the Andes. Oh, wow. Another search party made up of the Carib Carabineros. Carabineros? Carabineros, which is like carabiners. Yeah, which was like a nickname. It was the Chilean military police. Okay. And both the Chilean and Uruguayan air forces were involved in this massive search. But by that afternoon... All of these groups were stopped due to heavy snow and strong winds that protect, that persisted until the next day and the next day after that again. Some of the parents went home to Montevideo. I think like the reality of everything just hit them when they realized that there wasn't a whole heap of anything that they could do from Santiago either. You know, all they were doing now was panicking in the different city. Yeah. But Carlos Paez Villaro was not one of these people. He found the man who had, until very recently, owned the entirety of the land that they were now searching. Mm. And with him embarked on a two-day trek via car and horseback in an attempt to make good on his promise to find his son. God damn, that's some Liam Neeson shit. Yeah. And that's where we're going to leave it. Damn. Um, but yeah, this is... a. Uh, super serious story and next week it's gonna get way worse i have warnings in next week's episode as well because it just gets worse but this is a survival story yeah there are survivors at the end of this yeah and trust me your fucking face is gonna get blown off by the end of this that's in not a good, a good way. Joke. in a good way that's not a good joke because oh, yeah. the guy who was disfigured his face was disfigured beyond Oh, yeah. But he gets better. Oh, my God. <laughs> I don't know if I could take much more than this. Yeah. Uh, okay. So your mind is going to be blown. All right. Well, <laughs> if, uh, we're hoping not to forget to say the disclaimers, the warnings and all that stuff at the beginning of the next episode. But just in case we do, if you're at the end of this episode, we're giving them now. Okay. Yeah. I definitely will. I wrote it into the um, the notes for the next episode. But yeah, this, trust me, like this story is terrifying and beautiful at the same time. It, it's a story worth telling. Basically. Agreed. Agreed. So yeah, hope you all enjoyed. Make sure to follow us on YouTube, <sighs> Spotify, Patreon, all that crap. Um, 
reach out to us. We've actually had over the last few weeks since we've been missing like more random, not random, but like new listeners reaching out to us, just being like, "Hey, what's going on?" And we really appreciate that. It's we always just want lovely. to say, "Hey, yeah, we hey always back. love hearing this from is you us. guys." Yeah, in all our splendor. Yeah. Um. And yeah, have a great week, weekend, whatever. Love you all. Okay, bye. I'm walking away now. Bye. Bye. Somewhere in the middle of the Aldi's. Uh, of the Aldi's. The Aldi's. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere in the frozen uh. section. <laughs>